In episode 4 of Out of Play Area, we chop it up with Full Sail Hall of Famer Jameson Dural, who is the director of esports operations for Full Sail's Armada. Although I've never had the opportunity to work with Jameson in game development, he has been an exemplary role model who has laid a solid framework for all of us on how to maneuver through the industry, getting a job before he even finished his degree, onto working at Oddworld, coming aboard EA at our corporate headquarters to drive Godfather 1, 2, and The Simpsons, then onto Volition on powerhouse action titles including Red Faction, Saints Row, and more. Please welcome the host of Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson from the Sunshine State, Jameson Duraal. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one -on -one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. I don't know what goes into esports team management. It's interesting because we play eight games, eight titles that we play. So we have eight separate teams and there's just me and Hoyt, which is my team manager that kind of do this side of the work. And so there's a whole lot of like, okay, there's a match for this team this weekend at 2 p.m., we didn't find out who our opponents are until yesterday evening. We're waiting for the captain of that team to tell us who the opponent is so we can update our social media team and, and get the website updated. And, oh, no, now that they've made contact with that team, they actually want to reschedule for two hours later. So now it's, it's all that kind of stuff all the time. <laughs> That's crazy. Is it because esports or like pro gaming is still so young? Because comparing it to traditional sports, the season's mapped out at the beginning of the year. Everybody knows who they're playing, what day, what time. Mm -hmm. So it kind of does. There's a few things. One, most of these organizations, because we play at the collegiate level, are student run. These are people that are putting part time into it. They're not always the most responsible. Usually the people that are running the leagues are pretty responsible, but the captains of each team have to be the ones to reach out to each other. And like, even though a schedule's made, they'll make a default time for a match. Mm -hmm. Everybody has different schedules. Sometimes it'll be like, eh, one of my players can't make it. So can we move it to tomorrow at 3 p.m. instead of today at 8 p.m.? Like that stuff happens for a lot of our matches. Okay. Cause it's, so it's more like, there's an agreed upon window to be like, all right, anytime this week or this weekend, we're going to get it on. Pretty much. Yeah. Basically the way they, they do it is they say, here's the default day and time, but you could do it two days before or up to two days after. That's essentially kind of how they do it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, me being my non-punctual self, I appreciate the flexibility in time. Yeah, I agree with that. When I'm responsible for messaging out to all of my teams, you know, to social and like all these other people, it's like it, when something changes, I need to know right away. And the way it runs, my pl student players are the ones who are doing the communicating. I usually can't even have insight into it. That's something that still needs some fixing. Like they need to give team manager and authority people the ability to get in and also at least see communication and see that kind of stuff. But right now in a lot of the leagues... I just have to wait till they tell me and I have to just keep poking and be like, hey, you get this yet? You get mm -hmm. this thing changed yet? <laughs> Sounds like there's room for somebody to come in with like a tech solution for managing 
esports leagues. There is. There is room for that for sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's being worked on. This is very Wild West, right? There's some things that work well that came from traditional sports. There's some things that work well from traditional project management. But it's a unique thing, especially in the collegiate space, because like we were talking about, it's very volatile. Mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. me, I have the extra problem of because Full Sail has classes ending monthly, every month I have to continue to make sure that my players are eligible, that they meet the minimum GPA requirement, all of those kind of things. Oh, Even so- other universities only have to worry about that twice a year. I have to worry about it every month for every player. So it's sure. it's... That's a lot of my job is that kind of management of stuff. Comparing it to traditional sports again, when you're the team manager, the GM, or the coach, there's a clear separation between roles. And there's always somebody managing kind of personnel and other person. Right. So always doing wearing multiple hats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what are you sipping on, buddy? Oh, man. I have a Bell Mead bourbon. Uh, the, the from Bell Mead Dis, uh, Distillery. They're out of Nashville. Uh, actually, a friend of ours uh, works there. She's one of the like main distributors, and she gave us one for our wedding. And I drank it like way too fast, so <laughs> I had to go buy another one the other day. <laughs> you liked it that much? Oh man, yeah. It's one of the best bourbons I've had. It's really smooth, and has a really good taste to it. And it goes real well with ginger beer and ginger ale. So I've got a ginger beer with it tonight. It's delicious. And what'd you call that? You call that a what mule? Oh, uh, Kentucky mule is what it's usually called. I don't have the lime, but yeah, that's usually what a, it's a Moscow mule with uh, bourbon instead of the vodka is generally what they call a Kentucky mule. But I was kind of looking through my, my cabinet and my stash and I had a few options I had a, a brandy, and I wasn't sure how the brandy was going to go. So I just went traditional, got my vodka. Nice. Actually, oh, man, I grabbed the wrong thing. I grabbed the white rum. Look at that. Hey, that's not bad either. Uh, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> we'll see how this, this is like a, a Clemont. It's a French Caribbean rum. I couldn't find any of my Brugal, anything like that. And threw that in with a ginger beer. But like you, I don't have the lime. Mm. I'm sad about it because I love lime on top of stuff. I just forgot to buy one today. Yeah, I thought I had. I had a bunch of lemons. I didn't have lime. Uh, <laughs> but we'll make do, bro. We're game devs. We That's make right. do with what we got. Absolutely. Uh, so to that, cheers. Salud, friend. Cheers, buddy. Hey, that's a great call. That's refreshing. Nice. A little ginger beer on ice. Oh, man, I, I love ginger beer. Heck yeah, good call, man. It's going to be a good show. I got a good feeling about this one, Jameson. Hey, I'm looking forward to it, man. You do so much for Full Sail, and you came through the Full Sail curriculum, right? So I'm curious, how did you even come into knowing that you wanted to make games or be involved in games in some fashion? Yes, I definitely have a long history of Full Sail. (laughs) So as far as my love for games, that started when I was, you know, a little eight-year-old me, and throwing that NES cartridge of Legend of Zelda in for the first time. And the gold one? Yeah, the gold one. And and yeah. every time I think about this, I think about the fact that someone told me that it has a battery in the cartridge and someday you're going to lose your save game. And I worried about that every day of my life. <laughs> it never mattered, but I, like, it's, some, I, it's still the first thing I think of when I think about that cartridge. <laughs> 
That's funny. Because, yeah, I didn't find out till after. I had a bunch of cousins and relatives that we had it. And we would just all be like, oh, you must have, whatever old ladies' tales of like, oh, you must have dropped a cartridge or banged it. It wasn't until years later in the internet that it was like, oh, it's a battery. You can replace a battery and then the save game is good. Huh. Oh, I didn't even know you could replace it. That's awesome. <laughs> I, actually, I don't know if you could replace it, but I, I imagine in my head, it's like a watch battery or something that powers it. Probably. Yeah. Mm. It's like a, a 10 cent piece of battery in there that it, your entire save game is hinging upon. But that was revolutionary, right? For that time. I think that was the first of its kind that had that solution so that there was an actual save game to a cartridge. Right. Everything else was codes. Yeah, for the most part. It was also revolutionary, at least as far as I'm concerned, in the open world space, right? Where like you decide where you want to go, what you want to do, what order you want to do things. And it was actually a really terrible game at messaging anything, right? Like it Uh was very much you just got to figure it out, you know? I was talking to a buddy and we're always going back and forth on from software games, Demon Souls and Mm -hmm. Dark Souls. And he's like, yo... It's like an adult Legend of Zelda is really what you're playing when you jump into a Demon Souls or a Dark Souls. You're not going to hold your hand. They just kind of leave you to it. I uh, My first Souls-like game was Bloodborne, and I really enjoyed it. And now that I have my PS5, that's that I have it on there. And I, I played uh, about a half hour the other day, just kind of tinker with it. And I'm going to hate it, but I'm going to love it. So it'll... <laughs> gonna be one of those things shout to miyamoto man i have aspirations of meeting the guy one day but yeah like you said first true open world game yeah and and that was where i kind of got lost in in the game and just really absorbed and and having lots of conversations with my friends and mapping out on a grid paper the dungeon levels that was how i kind of figured out what was where and, and reminded myself until I got the Nintendo Power issue with the maps in it, you know. Yeah. So you were throwing down on paper design early, early on in your life. I guess so. I didn't think about it that way. But yeah, I guess I kind of was. Heck yeah, man. Putting grid paper to proper use. Man, I wonder if my mom has any of that paper still like in the attic. I may need to check that out when I go back next time. Yeah. yeah. So that's what really sparked your passion into games. Are, they could be a thing. Yeah, well, I knew I was super, like, into it. And I I really had no idea that I would ever have an opportunity to actually work on a game because nobody I knew had ever made a game, nor did they even know of anyone who had, right? There was no connection. So I focused on computer hardware growing up. And I built my first computer, I think, at 10 years old. And I was constantly upgrading and that kind of stuff. And... The first computer that I got, I sold my baseball card collection to get the money to buy it. And then from there, it was just kind of like piecemealing and that kind of stuff. So, and that's just what it does. Like, I'll probably do something in computer hardware, but my focus the whole time was I need the new video card to play the new game. Like, that was my objective all the time. (laughs) Do you remember your first bandwidth hog or whatever? Like the one that kind of, okay, now I got the video card. Now I could play this. Oh, well, I, one thing I do remember was when I got my first 3D card, a 3DFX card. Mm. It came with Turok. Turok. Yeah, what? and it had like volumetric fog, like, or at least it had some kind of fog in the game. Later, I realized there was so much fog because they couldn't render everything. 
but it had a really <laughs> cool immersive feel. <laughs> yeah, bro, that's that's a tried and true developer trick, right? To like limiting draw distances so yeah. you don't have to keep all that stuff loaded in memory. I mean, with the new consoles, I feel like... Oh, that's not even a problem anymore, right? <laughs> you got it at it, you know? Yeah, you throw, throw the whole kitchen sink in there. And say, right. No problem. Renders it all. That's sweet. <laughs> so Turok, Turok, of, of all the 3D shooters, you, you all the 3D FPSs you were going to name, I was not seeing Turok come. And that wasn't what I was trying to play. It's just like my first 3D experience in a, if, with a new card, right? So yeah. it was a memorable moment. The first game I remember being like, I need good hardware to play this was Unreal Tournament. Bad that, was, that was dope. That's UT1. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, man. Were you competitive with that? Are you playing AI? It was mostly AI. You know, that's actually one thing that, that's one regret I have from my early gaming life was... I didn't do many land parties or much multiplayer and that kind of stuff. It just was never really something that, well, one, I struggled a lot being colorblind. So, oh, so team-based right. multiplayer was very difficult for me and it wasn't very enjoyable. And so I didn't kind of gravitate toward it. It was very frustrating for me. Yo, I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that, right? Because when I think back, how you, everything was always kind of, you were either red team or blue team mm -hmm. and... I'd love for some of the listeners out there to be mindful of what somebody who's colorblind, what they struggle with specifically. So it's like, all right, when we go, we have color pickers or options. Which colors should we default to? Right. Well, let's talk about colorblindness in general. And mm -hmm. the thing that I try to describe to people is, one, it, it doesn't mean I can't see color. I can see color, right? The problem is distinguishing color. So what I try to explain to people is, imagine you have an accordion. And when an accordion is closed, you've got those separate little rungs there, right? And imagine each one of those is like a primary color. And I can see those colors, right? And I can tell the difference between a yellow and a red and a blue when they're, when they're very deep, vibrant, when they're essentially primary colors. Mm -hmm. If you take that accordion and open it up, and then those sections in between become blends of those two colors and gradients in between them. I don't really process that very well. To me, it's like those things in between are either the color to the left or the color to the right. Like it's that kind of thing. Yeah. When they're next to each other that close. Yeah. The, the spectrum gets very muddy. Right. Exactly. And so it's a distinguishing color problem. So whenever I see an enemy, it takes me a split second. I have to look for the color, right? I have to find it. And when I'm doing that, I'm getting killed. Yeah, those so like, twitch fibers of split second moments of like, do I pull the trigger or not, right? Right. Uh, that's all it takes. And a lot of games did not have friendly fire turned off, right? So I, I would get trigger shy. And then who's that helping? Like, I'm just getting man. shot, you know? You're, you're a good ally. <laughs> What's the saying? It's like, shoot first or kill them all. They God sort them out, right? Like, That's right. Or they're the opposite right. of that. Kill them all. Yeah. Duke nuke-isms. That's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like the main thing for me is when at most people, when let's say we're in a crowd of people and you want to point someone out to me, you would say, hey, check out the dude in a red shirt, right? Or check out the guy with blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And that that's not the way my brain works. My brain looks for shape. So I don't look at something and instinctively look for color. I have to look at something and find the color. Whereas for me, mm -hmm. if you're like, look at the guy in the hat, 
or look at the guy with the beard. Like that's the way my brain would would think instead. And not that everybody doesn't do that, but, sure. but color is a common you know thing that people use to communicate. And I, I have a lot of difficulty with it. That's awesome, man. That, that's super cool for for us to be more aware in how we describe things or how we design things. Because you're right, when you we're picking characters specifically in competitive games, when you think of any champions or classes in like Overwatch <clears throat> or games like this, character silhouettes, even when you're thinking of NPC classes, character silhouettes are a big aspect of enemy design for sure. Yeah. Yep, definitely. They have to be. So that kept you away from competitive gaming, right? So that's a, that's a lesson in leveraging research now that we didn't have before to make an inclusive space, right? To get as much players enjoying the games that we make. So you are playing 3D FPSs on your computer and you're not throwing enough LAN parties. And I'm sure <laughs> you're the guy with the computer in your hood that it's like people want to come over and check it out. I always had a good machine. That is for sure. You know, it's funny. I played a lot of like adventure and RPG games. That was my real area of expertise and fun. But the whole time, no matter what I'm doing, I'm loving games. I want to be a part of it. I'm building computers to do that. And then I get out of high school and I'm trying to figure out what in the world I'm going to do. And I actually went into banking for a bit. Like, well, I went I went to another university very briefly because they had a business, a computer degree. So it was kind of like, you know, be the, the tech guy at your work type degree. Okay. And in the first three months, I knew more than any teacher in that place. So like, cause that's what I'd always done. Right. Yeah. And so I was like, this is, this is not for me, right? Like the, I'm going to be way too bored here. And so I quit, you know? And, and so I went and worked at my local credit union for a little while and there's a part of me that's like, am I, am I a bank teller now? Is this, is this my life? You know, is that what it felt like? It did. Yeah, it certainly did. And, and I was that's good early. at it because I'm good with numbers. I, I could have done that, I guess. Like it's, I was doing well at it, but man, it was not fulfilling. That's for sure. <laughs> Quickly. That was like an easy realization. That you oh yeah. Made. Yeah. And then like the, the heavens opened and my cousin, who I grew up with, who he grew up, he's 10 years older than me, grew up next door. He is an audio engineer. He records albums. And he told me about Full Sail. So he, and he went to Middle Tennessee State. And then at some point throughout, after he was working, he made a connection with Full Sail and was doing some work with them. And he's like, hey, they're starting a program for game design. And I was like, what? Starting. Yeah, starting. As in, like, it doesn't exist yet. It's being developed. Are you interested? And I'm like, y yep. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. It's a thing. Yeah. So I went down there and stayed with him for a couple of days and did the whole campus tour. And, man, I fell in love. Like, have you ever gone somewhere and felt like you were home? In this context, I know the feeling well of stepping foot onto the Full sale campus <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> You really you see, get it. <laughs> you see those uh, mirror tinted windows, right? They, they kind of look like predator camouflage effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this was yeah. this was 1999, by the way, when I okay. when I went there. Great. And and so at that point, they started with audio and music production. Okay, so you you fell in love probably with like 
all the recording equipment. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. yeah because same I'm a hands on person, right? I understood music. My family actually owned a recording studio for a while when I was a kid. So, oh, so like, you've been I got around that those vibe. machines. Yeah. And actually, that, that recording studio is where my cousin got the itch and decided that's what he wanted to do and then went off to school to do it. So, it was interesting. My parents gave him that opportunity. So he turned around and showed me this opportunity. And not only that, but he actually let me live with him while I went to school and co-signed my loans. It was my cousin, Martin. He was the one who enabled me to do all of this initially. Shout out. Shout out to cousin Martin, man. That's right, man. I think it's so important to point out that helping hand that we all benefit from at some point in our journey, right? That kind of helps get us in the path that we're meant to be heading along. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I got there and, you know, just the whole vibe, like seeing how people were learning, what the structure was, the 24 hour, like just it, it emulated the entertainment industry. And that's, and it showed me like, I felt at home. I felt like this is the kind of thing that, that I want to do. And I've always loved games. So I'm like, if they're doing this for games, I, I want in on that. Right. And so I literally left everything and everyone I knew except for him growing up in Kentucky and moved to Orlando to start at Full Sail. That's so powerful, man. Like it's one thing to uproot and it's another thing to like not even look back and be like, yo, I found home. This is what I've been looking for. And and you you have the opportunity with, with your cousin Martin to to go full steam ahead. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. And I, and I was in the first class. Literally. Yeah. You're, so, yeah you're, was, you're, you're the trailblazer. That's like, right. <laughs> the way it started, though, back then they had a thing called mini school. And there was only an associate's degree at the time. So mini school was how they did their accreditation. So it was the first two months of the degree, four courses were your English and those kind of things. But they were still focused on entertainment stuff. So I wasn't just learning general things. I was learning a taste of everything type set of courses, but focused on general ed education. Yeah, And really everybody like went through that. No matter what degree program you were in, you did that. I do recall, you're right, like that. those were the classes where I got to mingle with students from the other curriculums, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. and that's always nice because it was definitely kind of one-sided in the game curriculum at the time. Right. So I'm curious, what was your favorite class and what was your final project? All right, man, this is an interesting question. So my favorite class was probably physics and math. And a big part of that. Stuff. What's that? You were meant for this then. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of it was the teacher. And <sighs> because she really knew how to make not only the information fun, but also applicable to what we were going to be doing. I've always been good at math, but I've never liked math. And this time I'm like, oh, actually, now I kind of like math. So that was kind of a big change of gears for me. But the coolest class I had <laughs> was the class that was taught by Dave Arneson. Like Dungeons and Dragons, Dave Arneson? Yeah, the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons. So R.I.P., man, R.I.P. Rules of the game. Rules of the rules game. Rules of the game. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so this dude was basically teaching us, here's what game design is. Here's, here's the things you care about. And there were two moments that I'll never forget. On the last day of class, he gave each of us essentially a starter kit of D&D. &D. 
that, that he's like, here you go. And I still have back on my desk behind me the, the leather bag of, of D&D dice that came out of that. So I've got a set of dice that he gave me. And then we did a day-long campaign that he ran that day. Oh, man. I'll never forget it. And the fun thing was me and four or so of the other guys in the room actually played D&D together when, in our free time. So, I mean, we were all like, let's go. <laughs> so, <laughs> So and we just like ran through the content, it, but it was awesome. Like it was really, really cool. Yo, I had rules of the game with Dave Arneson. Did you too? And I I'm, didn't know that. Yeah, and I'm I'm tight, bro. I'm tight. I didn't get no no. I didn't get to run with him DMing <laughs> for me. That's bull. I want I want I want to, and I can't even audit it to, to with Dave. That's, that's true. That's true, yeah, bro. Yo, but that's special. Not many people can say that they've got to chop it up with Dave and learn from Dave. But to run a D&D game with Dave Arneson, that's special. So there's one other bit, too. <laughs> oh, my God. But wait, there's more. That's right. <laughs> so just so happened while we were in his class was when the D&D movie came out. He had a cameo in that movie. So he was one of the wizards on a tower. So he took us to the theater to see the movie in full wizard garb he was wearing. He went in full in full costume. He sure did. And uh, so here we're we're all like a, in the second third row. He's in the front row. He's so excited. It's the first time he's seen it. I think it was the opening day too if I remember right. But man, that movie was bad. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was, it was one of those kind of I guess the wave of buddies around me steered me away so I didn't yeah. miss out. It it was bad. Uh, yeah. Hollywood didn't understand back then. That's right. And the thing that was so uncomfortable was, I just checked real quick. It had a 14 Metacritic. Oh. Yeah, it was was real bad. But he, so afterwards, he's like, hey, guys, what did you think? And we're like, oh, it was great, man. Right, like. (laughs) <laughs> good job like did you see me yeah we saw you man yeah. oh man that was a, a tough moment it was one of those where like there's no way no way any of us are gonna be like that was dog duty man I, I respect that i respect that right there's there's value in lying to protect someone's sense of joy i'm never trying to be a buzzkill to anybody oh man Whew. that was a good call on your part <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. I, I always forget about rules of the game and, and playing all these different board games. That's where I discovered Settlers of Catan and fell mm. in love. That To nice. this day, Settlers of Catan is one of my favorite games. That's awesome. What year did you go through? What year did you start? 04. 04, okay. Yeah, 04. So I probably saw him at the midway point, right? If it was a 21-month curriculum, it was somewhere around month 12 or 13. You already had the bachelors at that point. Yeah, I was probably like headway into a few of the bachelors. Like there was still associates going through while I was there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Good times. Good times. So after all that, right, mastering in physics and math and really get into hone in on game design and player pacing and storytelling, mm-hmm. what the heck did you end up being and doing for your final project? Because I, oh, I would yeah. be like lead programmer or something, I'd imagine. No, man. All right. So 
So here's the thing. So for for those that are unfamiliar, at the time it was it was game design and development. It was a mix of dev and design. So we got it was a lot of programming. So it was essentially like each month we'd have a programming course and a design course, right? That's kind of how it how they filtered through. And every course was a month until you got the final project. That was the first two month course that we had, and it was at the end. So we're making our way through, and I get to the end. And me and my buddy Miguel and Sam Birch, we we formed a team together and we decided to make a version of my favorite game of all time, which is Final Fantasy Tactics. That's right. So okay. we made Mercenaries. Yeah. Man, was it not good, but... <laughs> <laughs> but we had no assets. We had no, like it was, we had to do everything ourselves. It was all designer, programmer, art and stuff. But we, yeah. so we built the, we, we, we had no engine either. We did all of this from scratch. That's right. That's worth pointing out. The, you guys didn't have artists. Like at least when I went through, we had some labby artists that we can get assets from, right? Mm-hmm. At least we, we kind of called out the assets we would need ahead of time. And they hooked us up with the models and the animations. That's awesome. I didn't have that. Uh, so everything from scratch, so writing the engine, mm-hmm. building your own assets, and in in that time, the internet wasn't the marketplace grab bag of resources that it is today. No, not at all. <laughs> I think Turbo Squid was the only thing we had that that we could find any assets on. Okay, and Shout that was still very young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm sure like data types was a thing, right? Like yeah. compatibility issues. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and most of the stuff that was on there was not like game ready, right? Like it was you not know, high poly, that kind of stuff. So it was definitely a hit or miss. So we, did you did you go like full 3D for all your assets and everything? It was three. Well, it was the world was 3D, and then we went sprite based for the characters. Well, that must have been a cool look. Yeah, it was all right. And and I remember Miguel did like all of the the engine type programming. He did the rendering and the the grid and basically basically the the foundational stuff to make it work. And most of what I did was one, I did the all of the character classes designed and then implemented. And then also, I I made the first network capable game that came out of there. So Yo, I, I used Microsoft it? Foundation classes and TCP/IP to to like give direct connect to another machine. It was nice <laughs> MFC TCP. So okay, so you were just like straight up. Here's the IP, hard code the IP and mm-hmm. connect. Yeah. So hey, hey, that's still powerful, man. That's it that's worked. something to be proud of. <laughs> Heck yeah. It was it was wild, but it was it was hard. It was a lot of work. Dude, how much yeah, cuz cuz how much time did you guys have for the full production? 2 months. Like it was a 2 month course Dang. and that's all we did though, which was good. Yeah. Yeah, still that's that's fantastic. Like these days you have a game jam over a weekend and you already have an engine, you have uh, a grab bag of assets you can grab together, right? There's probably scripts mm-hmm. that people write that take care of so much of this already. Oh yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. That, and that's I I still find that awesome for a three person team in two months, networked, different characters, tactics clone. 
It was it was definitely not a big game, but uh, we we did most of what we set out to do. Uh, it at least resembled what we wanted to, which is nice. Did you learn a lesson in scoping or cutting? Well, we we had to kind of aggressively scope, but so like like everybody's eyes are bigger than their stomach, right? When it comes yeah. to what we're designing. Um, yeah. So, so absolutely, we had a, a major lesson in that. But we also very quickly, we we were all very practical people, and so we we didn't like, oh no, we've got it, we've got this grand vision. We no, it's like, what can we get done? Like, like we were always talking about that, like, where do we need to trim down? What do we need to do? Where can we get help? Can we get help? That kind of stuff. Yeah, and we get it done. So, so you finish your final project. You are the first class coming out of Full Sail's game development and design program in 2001. Now, now, I was not in the first class to come out. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, now we should talk about this. Okay. Because I was in the first class to start, but I did not pass my first programming class. Okay, first C++. Yeah. So I got about two weeks into it and in this in this four week class and I was it was my first time programming at all. Right. Okay. And I was I was at the point where I was like I had about a 70 in the class and I was just like, you know what? I do not feel comfortable with moving forward with what I know right now. So about halfway through, I made the decision to fail the class on purpose and retake it. And it was the best decision I ever made. Like it was like I came back through and I I knew the first two weeks already. So I was able to bang that stuff out, improve on what I knew. And then from there, it was it was uphill. And then and I, that was the only cl- the only grade I got that wasn't an A or a B throughout my entire time was the time that I redid that class. Thanks for sharing, Jameson, because. That that was a brave call that paid it paid off immensely because if you barely scratched through that, everything else along the way would have been ten times as tough. Yeah. And that's what I tell every student that I talk to now that is struggling in something. I'm like, look, if you're not getting it, try to get it, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're not and you're gonna struggle and you struggled last month, you're gonna continue to struggle. Like it's you don't wanna be in that position. I'm I'm with you, man. Like, a set. I I took a couple of courses two times through, and on that second time, right? It's like basically the first time through, it may as well been learning a completely different language, right? And then the second time through, it was like, oh, I can speak it fluently, right? And I can I can write it and and decode it, right? Like it's two different experiences, same class, same material. Sometimes it just takes a few. Uh, cracks at it for it to sink in to get that, right. to get that kind of clarity in that aha moment. Yeah, definitely. And when I did get to the end, I've got this this project that I'm working on. I got to tell you the story of how I got my first job. So we're in final project, and at that time, Gama Sutra had their own message boards. There was no social media yet, right? So message boards was how you communicated with people for the most part, and Gama Sutra was the only place that had any game development information out there. And so we were in the forums and I saw a post about full sale. And I went in there and someone was bad mouthing the school and they were saying things that you'll hear these kind of things fairly often, which is like, 
school's expensive. They don't teach you anything like that kind of stuff. Right. Yep. And so I saw it. And then when I looked at it a little deeper, I realized it was a dude in my class. That had posted this. Yep. And so I responded and I was like, look, man, the truth is you are surrounded with all the tools. You're surrounded by experts. You're surrounded by a curriculum that will teach you the things you need to know. It is on you to have the drive and determination and willpower to absorb the knowledge and learn the things you need to learn to do the thing that you said you always wanted to do. Because that's how I feel. I, I will say that to this day to anyone that wants to know. What I did not know is that the CEO of a new startup was reading those forums, liked what I had to say, and contacted the school to get my information. And that's how I got my first phone interview with a company in San Diego. What would you say is good karma coming back to you? I sure feels that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how at least I got the call, right? Mm-hmm. And I had the phone interview and it turns out it was it was guys that at that time EverQuest was the biggest massively multiplayer game in the world. One of the few. And then like World of Warcraft didn't even exist yet. But some guys left Varant to make their own company to do an MMO. It's like right at the start of like, there's little MMOs popping up everywhere. WoW didn't come out until 2004. Oh, okay. okay. And this is, this is 2000, end of 2000. Okay. So this is probably on the strength of like Ultima online. Or something mm-hmm. like yep. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And then you saw things pop up like or dark age of Camelot came out shortly after that, actually, which is, that came out in 2001, which ended up being the game I played for 10 years. But that that's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that got you. Yeah. So I was playing EverQuest. And so I had a really good conversation with these guys. The guy that called me, his name is Guido Hinkle. He was one of the designers on Planescape Torment. And you know the game with the guy with the blue face on the box? You ever see that Planescape game? Yeah, I've seen this box. Look at the that, skeleton. That's looking him. Local. That's the guy. So he called, we had a good conversation, and they brought me out to San Diego. And uh, the company was called Emusement, and it was like a new startup in San Diego. And I got out there, and the best thing was I had my final project to show them. And they were blown away that a student at a university was learning about game development and could show them something, not only that I worked on, but I could describe and show them the code and walk them through everything like I knew what I was talking about. Absolutely. They were just blown away because that, that didn't exist at the time. You had your laptop with you. you oh, yeah. Took Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's strong. That's a strong move right there. It's a, a big dick move is like what's <laughs> well, all I had. And it was the purpose, right? Like the, that's the purpose of that final project is so you have something to show potential employers. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go show them. And I remember, too, I'd showed a bunch of people and I just put my laptop away. And another guy walked in and goes, hey, guys, what's going on? And they were telling everybody, he goes, oh, man, I want to see. So I had to, like, pull my laptop back out, set it back up, <laughs> show him again. And he's like, and they were like, no, you know, I'm like, no, I don't mind at all. Let's check it out. I, I think that's something special that you get a lot of in this industry is that anybody at any given moment is super keen to play a game that somebody is super excited to show them. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I've run into a bunch of people all over the place that they have something on their phone. More often these days, it's definitely something on their phone. Like, hey, bro, yeah. let's go. check out this. This is what I worked on. And, oh, let's talk about it. What do you do on that? Oh, really? I love that about what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the the interview went well. 
and they offered me a job before I graduated. I had a job waiting. You were in final project Mm -hmm. when this happened. Yep. And so you knew you had a job waiting after college. Yep. I walked graduation and drove out the next day. So you're like Winter Park, Florida, and you're heading to the complete opposite coast of the country. Yeah. (laughs) Four four day drive across, I believe. Yeah. California dreaming. (laughs) (laughs) That that's the best, man. That that is like I, I don't know of any better journey through from like I got a cousin that's gonna help me told me about it, that's gonna I can crash with, go through this curriculum. And then on the strength of standing up for your experience and the school, catch wind from a company all the way on the other side of the country. And that gets you in the door. And then your final project kind of gets you the job. And I imagine also your character. I hope so. (laughs) I hope that had something to do with it. So that was your foot into this wild industry we call video games. Yeah, man. That's, That's where I got my start. I love all the games you've touched. Walk me through the games you've touched and what you did on them that you are... I mean, I know you're proud of it all and the people you worked with, but pick a couple. The first moment that I was like, oh, I'm I'm really making games now was mm. when I went to work at Oddworld. Dude, yes. Because, wait, Oddworld already had a few iterations out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had they'd shipped three games, both Abe, Abe games and then Munch. And they were working on Stranger's Wrath when I got there. And it was a small team. Only 24 people were in development. Okay. And a uh, custom engine built in Maya. It was a C-based engine that was integrated into Maya. And the reason I loved the place so much was every one of those dudes on that team were so good at what they did. I learned so much and was pushed to get better constantly, but also in like a very, like we were all friends. Like it was a very cool vibe. So it was just like, Oh man, I can do better than that. And there was this, this friendly rivalry that happened all the time. That was really, really cool, which helped make the games really great. We were immersed in, there was posters and drawings and stuff everywhere. So it was like my first, like, Oh man, this is what a game studio is like. It was really cool. Were you designing and programming? Yeah, I was a designer. So their designers did everything. So I was the person who blocked out all the levels. I did all the scripting. I scripted custom gameplay stuff. And then basically all that would ever happen is if I needed it, someone would help me optimize and things like that. But like, for instance, the Joe Mama battle that I designed has this big pile driver. And so I'm the one that went in and put this block machinery in set all the animations to it. Like I was coding angles and making it like when the players in this box move to this, in this direction over to this spot and then call this other animation. I I handcrafted all of that stuff. Okay. You had a super low level kind of C based Mm -hmm. language where you're catching all these events and hooks. Yep. Second, essentially second to second. Yeah. You would drop something into the world and you could attach a script to it. Okay. And then, so I could type on that script, right? And then I could even have like, you know, each level had like a master script it was running through, and I could do things based off of conditions in there. One of the towns that I ran, New York City, there's chickens, but anyway, the whole town was the hub. 
And so what I had to do was like, when the player first comes to this hub, I've got to set the stage, which means I've got to set variables. So all the guys that I place around are saying the right lines, that kind of thing. And then when the player accepts a bounty, I've got to change some triggers in the world so that now they're saying other things and the gate opens to that level. But then once they go through that, it, that gate, now it's someone else's level, right? Okay. And so, so that's then you, you kind now of I'm just waiting it. for the information, right? Is level completed? Okay, you're flipping a switch for me here. Now player comes back and I've set the stage for their return. That kind of thing. Okay, okay. So a lot, yeah. So a lot of design and programming, right? Essentially oh, yeah. kind of gameplay programming. A lot of programming, yeah. It's all text-based and you're in the 3D editor. Right. So it's funny. I had to look it up real quick just to remember which one is which. And they have an iOS port. A Stranger's Wrath? Yeah. You can fire <laughs> that sucker up on iOS. Oh, man. Sweet. Dig yeah, up, I played guys. the HD remake not long ago on stream, and uh, that was fun. Is it what 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 console? What store? You can get it anywhere now, but I played it on uh, Steam. Okay, but it's on all the. You can get it on PS4 and stuff as well. That franchise is coming back. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, soon. Yeah, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. See where the next generation takes it. Yeah, it looks much more like the original Abe games. So I'm curious to see what that's going to look like. Speaking of you playing on stream, you have your own stream. I do. On top of, well, you do so many things, but... Too many, probably. I, I want to call out this awesome little community that you've built around your stream and the Discord and the podcast. Yeah, man. Uh, I appreciate that because I've, I've been streaming for about three years now, and through the first part of it, I really was trying to figure out, what am I doing here? Do I have an agenda? Am I just playing games and hanging out? Like, what is that? Then I realized that I'm a game designer. That's what I do. Not only do I do that, but I care a lot about helping people understand what that industry is like. And a lot of that came from the time teaching at Full Sail and teaching people that were learning to do games. I was like, you know what? I'm saying the same things a lot to people individually, and I'm mentoring people individually and in small groups. I'm like, I should take this mentorship and just make it broad and accessible. So then people can be a part of this and learn kind of what games are like and what it is to make them. What I started doing on my stream was on my Game Dev Wednesdays, I would play through games that I worked on Mm. two, three hours at a time and talk about, hear stories of what happened and in the development and our balancing was kind of off here, that kind of stuff, and just kind of talk through that. And then Eventually, I changed it a bit to where now what I do on those Wednesdays, and you know this because you came and did this with me, is I have my friends on that I've worked with or friends that just work in the industry. I have them on. We do like a two-hour interview where we talk about what was it like for you to get into the industry? What did you learn along the way? What kind of stories do you have for us for people that are interested in doing this? It's been a really good resource for people to kind of sit in and listen to these different Everybody's path is different, you know, and everybody's role is different and kind of the roles they took along the way. And how did they get that first job? And there's a lot of really good info there. So we have those streams every Wednesday night at seven. And then I take that also and make it into a podcast episode. 7 p.m. Eastern on top of all the other segments that you do on your stream throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah. Tuesdays is community night. That's fun. (laughs) We play Jackbox right now. So that's good. Yeah, there's like an Among Us clone in there I heard about mm-hmm. lately. So with Game Dev Wednesday and your stream, 
you are definitely a prime motivation and inspiration for the inception of this show because up until I got on with you, you helped me see that it's like, oh, you know, the barrier to entry for doing something like this is only as crazy as you want to make it, right? Like like any content creator or developer, we always have super crazy aspirations of like, oh, I want to have this studio and I want to have a high-end equipment and I want to mm-hmm. invite people. And <laughs> the pandemic being the great equalizer showed me that it doesn't have to be that crazy, man. Get on a mic, get on a headset and set up uh, some time over the internet and capture these conversations. So shout out to you, Jameson, because without that experience, I don't think out of play area would be a thing right now. So thank you immensely for showing me that it's not as crazy as I was making it out to seem in my head. I love that, man. And I'm really happy that it's something that happened for you in this experience because I wasn't even thinking about that, you know, like, you know, I was thinking about people learning to make games, but here now I'm doing a a new thing and showing someone that that's not hard either. You know, like, that's great. I love it. You, you continue to teach. And to be fair, I tune in on Wednesdays. I love the the people that come on, the conversations that you have. I learn a ton from it. And that's the thing. It's like, no matter how long you've been doing this, there's always opportunities to learn more because mm-hmm. there's a million different ways to do the same thing or to solve a specific problem. And yeah. there's so much insight from hearing how other people did it at other studios or on different tool sets or just hearing their thoughts to approach something. Love it. It's really nice because like I said, I've for a long time, I've been kind of trying to figure out what am I doing what am I trying to do? You know, that kind of thing. And honestly, I'm someone who I think you and I've talked about this before, but I'm most people think I'm an extrovert, but mm-hmm. I'm actually an introvert and I'm really good with speaking in public and you can put a thousand people in a crowd and I can talk to them. No problem. But when I'm done, I need a quiet room for a while. I need to chill. I need to recover because it's, it's exhausting. And early on, my stream was exhausting because I was trying to do things I wasn't comfortable with. I was trying to be a streamer, not trying to be me that streams. Once I figured out it doesn't have to be all me while I have great information and I have 20 years of experience that I can impart upon people it doesn't have to always be me. I've also got a lot of friends that have great information that I can have them come on and talk to them. And for two hours, I basically just get to sit and drink with a buddy of mine and catch up on old times. And that is great for me, you know, and then other people also love it. Dude, it's funny because we came onto the show and we, we kept in touch. And so for however long you and I have known each other I would say because of Full Sail, mm-hmm. mind you, we didn't go through at the same time, but you were a prominent figure because of getting inducted to the Hall of Fame. And there was an opportunity that I guess alumni events were reaching out and I forgot what it was called, but I wanted to say it was kind of like the Brazil game show. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And it was like, I don't know, 20. 2012, 2013. Yep. That's around the time. Yeah. And it was awesome because they reach out to me and they're like, Hey, are you interested in coming aboard to this event in Brazil as part of representing full sale and talking about the curriculum and your experience? And I didn't even hesitate, man. I'm just like, 
Absolutely. <laughs> Where do I you sign? <laughs> Where do I sign? Let's do it. And I think they had mentioned that you were involved in it. And so that's what kind of let me know. It's like, all right, this is legit. You know, there's some other people going out there. Like, I've never been to Brazil. I'm not trying to go there by myself. I hadn't either. (laughs) (laughs) And I I didn't even think. And this was a super rookie mistake. (laughs) Because what I should have done was check with the... I was with Rockstar San Diego at the time. And... I thought it was just a matter of like, hey, I'm going to take the PTO. I'm going to be gone this weekend. As long as my PTO is cleared, I'm fine. But rookie mistake of not having told my bosses of the team that this game show is interested in me. Mind you, it was probably because I was working on GTA (laughs) 5 at the time. So to them, it would be a draw or a way to get more people in the door. Not because of, oh, me, John Diaz, full sale alumni kind of thing. But I, I had no clue. And some way, somehow, word gets back or they publish uh, an article on the front page of the event with my silly headshot <laughs> that I took on my phone and sent over there. And it was in Portuguese. And it basically, it translates directly to like production. Producer of Grand Theft Auto Five. You know, yeah, like, like they definitely overhyped your involvement, right? Yes, man, and <laughs> and so everything you would imagine about that, what it triggered, and the the chaos that ensued after the fact, put me in a lot of heat with my team, with with Rockstar. So the lesson from that for, that I can share with people is. Before accepting any public-facing events, <laughs> clear it with your PR, clear it with your team. Tell them, hey, here's this thing. Are you guys cool with it? Is, it? is there someone else more qualified that should take it, right? Usually, most teams are cool with it, right? You, you probably yeah. sit down with a PR person, and they'll walk you through, hey, say these things, don't say these things. But in my silly juvenile head, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going as a full-sale rep. I'm not going as a rock star representative. but You don't get to control the narrative, right? Right. The media controls the narrative. So I was so excited to see you in Brazil, and I never got to kick it with you. You No, I didn't go either, right? So Full Sail just pulled out. They did. I remember I was at Full Sail for something shortly before it happened. I was down there for either PAC or something. And Ken Goldstone, who's essentially second in command at Full Sail, pulled me into his, his office, and he's like, look, there's some weirdness going on here. They said, we don't feel like they're portraying our people correctly. We just don't feel comfortable with, with you guys going now. And I was like, all right, that's cool. You know, like, that's fine. <laughs> it would have been awesome, but I get it. I definitely don't want to get in a position where there would be anything uncomfortable happen. You know, I did later go to Brazil just a few couple of years ago and it was awesome. They did it right this time. Mm-hmm. And you got to, you got to reap the, the rewards. Yeah, it was cool. How how was it? What was it like all about? Is it kind of like a GDC, but in a different country? So this one was a little different. What I did this time was I was there for about a week and I traveled to various high schools. It was essentially like a recruiting thing. All I did was I went and I did my industry lecture where I told them about me, what I did, what I worked on, what I learned, all that kind of stuff. So they could be like, oh, look, somebody who has made games, he went to this school. Maybe I'd be interested in going to this school. So it was that kind of thing. 
But then there was also this humongous gaming festival that I was on stage for and did the talk there. And that was uh, much more similar to the kind of thing we were going to do when we went, when we were going to go. Oh, man. And, and what I do know is that there is a a bustling, thriving game development community down there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, it really is. They're doing some great stuff, too. Yeah. But I did get to eventually bump into you in person. <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> that was what? GDC 19? Is that right? Yeah, GDC 2019. Finally. Well, that was my first time getting back to GDC in a long time. Because I went every year when I lived in California. But once I got in the Hall of Fame, it was almost always the same month as Hall of Fame. So I feel like I need to go to Hall of Fame. Like, it's important to to me and I want to be a part of that. And for GDC, a lot of that I can see through the online talks and stuff like that. But this time I was able to do both. And so I did Hall of Fame and then I headed out to GDC. Okay, you got to do both. You got to fit it in. Thank goodness that you did. I feel the same. (laughs) (laughs) I was I was just hyped to meet you finally. And I think I think we we got to link up. I don't know. We we said like, hey, let's link up in the escalators in the Moscone Center, whatever Mm -hmm. big one was on the floor. I was with Amazon at the time. I think my shift was done at the booth. Yep. And we got Sounds to kick right. it, man. I think we all went over to like the Epic booth and they would give, it was happy hour or something. So we all got some beers. <laughs> it sure was. And I will never forget this moment because like, so, and I know we've talked about this before, but I've, I've felt like I've known you forever, right? Cause we've had communications and we've been Facebook friends, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so you're someone that's like, this is literally a friend that I haven't met yet. Yeah. And you know, so I was looking forward to meeting you and we're, we're there. We hung out out front for a bit and then we went and met some people in the Epic booth. We got some t-shirts and happy hour. I've got a beer in my a t-shirt in my right hand and a beer in my left hand. And we're just standing around. It's me, you, and I think Will Fitzgerald was there and was Ari there? Ari Patrick? I think that might've been who was around us. I can't remember for sure. And I know there was two Epic, two Epic guys with Was them. it two Epic? Okay. But yeah, I'm pretty sure Ari was there. I can't remember if, who the other one was, but we're standing there talking and I, and I still to this day do not know what happened, but all of a sudden my left arm just kind of like shook and uh-huh. like half of that beer went right on you. <laughs> Cause I was on your left. You were. And like, I, I think what might've happened was like, it started to slip and I like, you know, just like quick grab to hold on to it. And it was like a flimsy plastic cup. Yeah. And so like, I kind of like just jerked it a, a, over Man, I I look at you and you're covered in beer. And I'm just like, oh, my God. (laughs) This is a great timing because imagine if I was like about to start my shift, if I had like the late shift. And I go into my booth like smelling of beer. They're like, where you been, bro? (laughs) That's a bad look for us. But it was great. I I laughed. I laughed it off, right? Because I'm I'm in the spirit of things. I'm having a blast. I'm like, (laughs) I don't know what happened. But I can tell. It wasn't malicious. Oh no, absolutely not. <laughs> it was. It was just the shit happened. I don't know what happened. Unfortunately, I think I have. I have a dog, so I'm used to getting shit on me and, and fucking me up. Because in a different time, Jameson, you know, I'm from New York City, man, and like people step on your sneakers, you got to make a big deal out of it, right? So, <laughs> so 
luckily all all that's been deprogrammed out of my brain something about being in games industry and and not sweating little trivial things like this and i appreciate it man i i, I love because it gives me a great story of the first time i finally got to meet you uh, it's kind of legendary i'll never I'm, forget it that's for sure <laughs> And I think I think it just goes to it because I had an Unreal shirt anyway. So I was like, all right, well, good thing I got. It was kind of like fate that I had this T-shirt to replace the beer-battered T-shirt that I now had. <laughs> and your shift was over. Imagine you showed up in that in Unreal shirt for your shift. It would not <laughs> have gone over as well. The Amazon Lumberyard engine, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> it would have been epic. Literally. Literally, yeah. <laughs> Good times. Man, Jameson, so like, I know I'm jumping all over. It's because you've done so many damn things. You were a fellow EA game dev at some point in your life as well. I was, yeah. I feel like everybody's gone through EA in some form or fashion. Yeah, this was the first moment that I felt like I'd made it. And that's because when Oddworld shut down, it was the first time that... I wasn't scared and looking for work. I had people calling me. And that was a very, a very nice feeling, a very different feeling than I'd had over the past, you know, couple of years. You pointed it out when studios close down or projects get canceled. So I'm stealing this from you, by the way. Full credit to you. <laughs> uh, it's it's like a Black Friday sale for mm-hmm. talent. And it really is. And, you know, PR news spreads super fast when a company is going through issues and recruiters and and leads and, and directors are like first on the scene to be like, all right, who's there? Who do you know? Who do you vouch for? Put me in touch. Right. So, well, yeah, is that is that kind of what what, what happened? You, oh, you were that's getting 100%. Yeah. Like, and and it's it's funny because like all of us who are in games, we know that when a game ships and it does poorly or if a company shuts down, that almost always has nothing to do with the individual talent on the team. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's so many other things that contribute to that. And especially a team that had just put out a game that was as highly Metacritic rated as Stranger's Wrath was, you know, like it's you, you got to go after those people. Right. Mm-hmm. And. And it's a place where there's not much question at that point. It's valuable talent is available now, right? Let's go get them. Yep. And so I had several, several people calling and it was nice. I I went to an interview at Zipper. I went to an interview at EA. I had other places I was talking to. And ultimately uh, for two reasons, EA was the the company that, that I decided to go with. And one was because a couple of my friends also went there. And I was going to get to work with my lead designer again, Eric Yo, And uh, so, you know, that was awesome. So I got to do that. I felt very comfortable with my new leadership, right? Because I knew my leadership. Mm-hmm. And they paid me really well. I remember in the interview, they asked me what I made before. And I told them I made 10 grand more than I did. Hey, hey, that's a pro tip, though. Everybody, yeah. everybody out there know. That's a, <laughs> they're going to ask you that question. That's an instant raise. Yeah, <laughs> right exactly. You're making. I mean, to be fair, it should always be the move on the hiring party to give you the range that they expect for right. the role. Sure. You know, but you knew what you were doing. Yeah, well, I, I I didn't, but I, I I I had an idea. You know what I mean? Like, like the whole thing was very much like, 
you could tell they they were interested, right? So that that made me feel more comfortable. But yeah, I was like, I made more ten more than I did. They asked me what I wanted. I told them I wanted ten more than that. They gave me ten more than that. So that that's how you knew. <laughs> that's so that's a sign right away when they kind of give you what you asked for with no back and forth. Yeah, that's a sign that it's like, oh, it was right where they were hoping to go, yeah. or or less than. It's worth noting too that. Depending on the location, that definitely factors into oh, absolutely the salary ranges. Yeah, it was more expensive to live in the Bay than it was down in San Luis Obispo, but not terribly much more. So it was still a good raise for sure. Nice, nice. You were still able to live comfortably. Yeah, yeah. Well, for for where, for what I was doing, right? Like it's hard to live comfortably in the Bay Area. That's but, true. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> you got to make ends meet somewhere. Mm-hmm. somewhere. Dude, okay. So, this, so then you're in EA Redwood Shores. Yeah, World Headquarters. That's, that's, I haven't even been there. I mean, mind you, I haven't been to any office in the last year. No, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hi. So you felt like you made it because – you got to pick from multiple offers. You got offered something that you were asking for versus kind of something that was kind of given to you mm-hmm. as concept. And you're working with your buddies. You're working with leaders that know what you're capable of and you work well with. So life is good. Yeah, no, it was good. I got up there and the project was also interesting too, because I actually went to work for Mac, which is the Sims company. And okay. we were going to make the first action-based Sims game. Get out was, of here. Yeah, and it was going to launch on the, the next-gen consoles, which was the Xbox 360. So that was the plan. And we had just built this kind of game, right? So we we came in as experts, which was really cool. A good scenario to kind of be in. I, I still can't remember to this day exactly how much, but it was about a week before they're like, hey, man, we need help on Godfather. I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to work on Godfather. So that's what I went to do. That and, uh, yeah, it was it was good times. It was the, that's the nice thing. Like getting getting brought onto a project late is actually really good for your career because you're going to work hard, but you're going to get a title under your belt in less than a year. And earlier in your career, that is a very important thing to do. One hundred percent. You're absolutely right. Being able to get something shipped, you learn so much once the, the goal line is in sight. Mm-hmm. And the design is somewhat in place and everybody has a good sense of what the game is. Then you're just throwing everything you got into it, right? To make things work. And then right. as they work, <laughs> how to optimize it or what else can you do? Because this is just feeling really good. Yeah. And so that was Godfather 1. Yep. That was the first one. And I did interior design, <laughs> interior design. We, uh, <laughs> when you went into the interiors, like the bars, hotels, those kind of things, I owned a, a series of those that I put the gameplay into. I recall those felt like like system kind of like prefab spaces because they kind of had similar objects and objectives, but there was a bunch of different configurations of them. Yep, you just described it. We had a tool called the Location Templates tool, and we would go into this tool and we would lay out the pathing and basic object layout and that kind of stuff, and then we would stamp it into various parts of the world. So you'd Uh see the same hotel in, say, two, three, four spots across multiple cities, and then we would go into the instance 
and adjust. Nice. That seems pretty powerful to really lay out content in a huge open world like like Godfather was. It was, yeah. The, the only problem was they were still developing the tools, so we had to redo that process many times, but... It should have been super, you know, <laughs> helpful well, there overall. Was a sequel, right? There was. There was, yep. And that was actually my first true lead role. I was the lead mission designer on Godfather 2. Well, I was technically the, the Springfield lead on the Simpsons game in between, but I wasn't leading other designers. This time I led the whole mission design team. I got to take advantage of the fact that you got leadership chops because it's a completely different job, right? Like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, thinking that a lot of people, myself included, haven't really experienced, right? And so I'd love to scratch into how it changes your day-to-day or what your main goal is compared to when you were just a content creator, right? As opposed to a people manager. Yeah, it should have changed a lot, but it didn't, unfortunately. So what I was now responsible for that I hadn't been before was helping to inform the creation of the schedules, right? So I would talk with the project manager about like, where are things? Where do we need more time? You know, those kind of things. And then, you know, each designer had their own set of missions they were working on. So I was doing reviews with them, checking in on their content, basically helping guide them in the work that they were doing. And so ultimately I was responsible for the creation of all these missions at a high level and making sure they were meeting our objectives and that they were coming in on time, you know, all that kind of stuff. That should have been my job, but I also still did level design myself. And I personally designed and built the first mission of the game and the last mission of the game because those were the two most important. And the first mission was what we were going to show at our at our uh, Summer Nights E3 type showcase. So I had a lot on my plate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and uh, I kind of wish I hadn't have done all that, but, you know, it, but I got it done. There's something to be said for, you know, having something that's asked and delivering, right? Like your yeah. team dependent on you to lead the way. This is what I've seen in the past myself often as well is the most experienced person doing the job gets the lead and is, is at the forefront of the hardest problems for the specific team and then the juniors or the people underneath that lead get to kind of follow the example, right? Like, or that's the go-to for any blockers in whatever content you're building. Yeah. But it still ends up being a mentor role. There's definitely a lot to that for sure. There's a bit of, I want to say fatherhood to it because you're encouraging, but you're also in a way disciplining, right? You're making sure that it's meeting a bar, that you're encouraging them with the good things, but also being like, hey, this could be better. Have you thought about doing this? You know, maybe next time try this other thing. And I think that's a lot of what mentorship is though, right? Is that guidance and encouraging while also showing areas that can be improved. Yeah, and and the method that that comes back is super impactful for anybody that looks up to their lead, right? Like, hey, yeah. I, how, how do I do my job more effectively and do it better and to, to help the team out with the time that we have or with my own particular area of ownership? Yeah. Man, and doing schedules, that sounds fun. Yeah, luckily I wasn't like super responsible for that. I just had to give input. <laughs> that kind of scheduling is not my cup of tea for sure. You and me both, Jameson, you and me both. <laughs> Unfortunately, somewhere along the way, you 
move on to volition and Mm -hmm. i I say unfortunately right because you left ea but fortunately because volition just does fantastic games yeah and this was actually the first time that i left a job because i wanted to not because i had to well you were empowered in picking to go to ea Mm -hmm. and then you had kind of the same autonomy and being like okay i'm ready to to, to change things up. Right. Yeah. So every other studio had, had layoffs or closure. And this time it was a recruiter reached out to me and was like, Hey, we're doing stuff similar to what you're doing. And we need someone with your expertise. And it was in Champaign, Illinois, which at the time was almost exactly halfway between my family in Kentucky and my ex-wife's family in Wisconsin. So like the location couldn't have been any better when I have, you know, a child that's a couple of years old that they all want to see, you know. So this was this was more four years old at that point, yeah. Four years old. Okay, this was more for for family than than career. It, no, it was both, for sure. Okay. Because like it was there was also the fact that they had this destru- destruction technology in Red Faction that I'd never seen anything like it and that was an interesting challenge for me. And, you know, it was, I got to come and be at the very earliest part of development. So it was something that I could come in and kind of, for the first time, have an impact early on a project instead of when a lot of that, the early stuff is kind of already figured out. It was a good news though. I was there for eight years. So (laughs) it worked out okay. Yeah, that's, that's well above and beyond the bar for most game developers in the industry, sadly, but then at a single place, even more so. Yeah. I, I know we have we have a bunch of buddies that work there that I definitely aim to get on this podcast and sometime or the other. I hired um, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Dude. And and so it seems like seems like Volition had this awesome culture to go with the types of crazy games that you guys built. Yeah, it was a very, very you felt respected and trusted, which was a very nice thing. And the creativity was something that was always encouraged. We would always make plans, but if a better idea came up, we would try and we would reanalyze it. Is this something that we should do? And it was a very, very fun place to work. For a lot of that time, we had what we called flexible work environment. What does that mean? That's where we only had to be in the office for two hours a day. And then you kind of could flex as far as like, I'm going to work from home this afternoon. And like, of course, now we're all home, right? But at the time... That didn't really happen. It was like, as long as you were there for scheduled meetings, mm-hmm. it was more of a, you've signed up for this amount of work this month. As long as people have you when they need you, I don't care where you do the work. I don't care when you do the work. You can work noon to nine or you can work 4 a.m. You know, like it doesn't matter. Like we don't care. And you don't have to tell us you're going to the doctor today. You know, like that kind of thing. It's like, just do what you need to do and get your work done. And it was, it was really cool. Yeah, it feels like you're being treated like adults rather than children, right? With people kind of forcing you to clock in or clock right. out to be someplace. It's such and, a terrible feeling, man. Dude, you're right. And this is scary to think that from now going forward, right? And now we're in 2021 that this hybrid work from home thing may stick, you know? I hope but so. I Yeah, I hope so as well. Because up until last year... I would have told you that that is an amazing perk to work at Volition in Champaign, Illinois. That's unheard of in the industry. Yeah. 
Yeah. And now other people are finally catching on, right? That people can be productive without having to all be physically in, in a building. I think Microsoft has already said that work from home is permanent now, right? Yeah, they're one of the trailblazers, at, at least at that huge international brand corporate level yeah. to make that statement. It's a great recruiting tool as it well. It is. It is. It's bold. It's really bold. But it's also, it's right. I think the one thing that this pandemic has shown us is that we are capable of doing this. You know, creativity isn't stifled because you're not in the same room together, you know. Yeah. And, and when you're more comfortable, you're more free to be creative, you know. Like, I, I'm in pajamas all the time, man. Like, <laughs> like you know, I put on, an, you know, a clean T-shirt when I have a, a, a Zoom call. Other than that, I'm in whatever I slept in. I'm comfortable. You know, I'm drinking my coffee. I'm, it, I find that I, I work at various times now, but I don't feel bad. I'm like, you know what? It's middle of the day. I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. I don't have any meetings. You know what I mean? Like it's, I'm, I'm able to, to do what's best for me to be productive. I rarely actually take a nap. I'm not much of a napper, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I love what you said. And I'm going to tattoo this somewhere or make it a model that, Comfort equals creativity. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah, because that just lets your brain do its thing and figure out solutions to these crazy problems. So you're at this amazing place with this great culture, making awesome games and Red Faction, Saints Row, which I love to no end. And you make the call to leave that. And I'd love to know your motivations behind that decision? Well, there, there was a few things. One, I'd always felt like I would eventually be back at full sale in some capacity. And I always had the 20 year mark in my head is like, that's when I'll have done enough, when I'll feel like I want to just kind of go and focus on giving back because I've always enjoyed doing it and I'd like to be able to do it more. And at that point I was at the 16 year mark in my career. I'd been at Volition for eight years and it was kind of at the point, quite frankly, where I had now kind of done everything I could do at Volition. Sure, I could continue to to work on more games, but there were no more promotions. I just kind of felt like I tapped out a bit as far as like, I, I feel like if you're not growing, you're dying. So, mm -hmm. and, and you, were, I, you were design director. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was a principal designer as far as the scale goes, which means that there's nothing above that, right? And the other thing is I was looked at to be an expert, right? And I was in a lot of ways. There weren't many people there for me to learn from now. I mean, there's amazing people there. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying like for the things that I wanted to develop, there just wasn't that kind of that drive for me anymore. And so I just kind of felt like it was time for a change. And yeah, yeah I, eight I, years I, is a long time. Damn Skippy. <laughs> it's a long time. And then there was a couple of other things. I, I had never been an entrepreneur and I wanted to scratch that itch a little bit. So what this gave me the opportunity to do was come down to full sale and teach. And then it's actually encouraged that the instructors have side gigs. So they stay current in the industry. They have things to talk to their students about that kind of thing. So it was an opportunity for me to go and have my day job where I'm, focusing on mentorship and teaching of my craft to people, which I want to do and love to do. And then also be encouraged to have a side hustle for the first time, instead of like, you know, 
most game companies are like, if you work here, we own what you're doing. And so that's that's a really tough thing to kind of deal with. Now, Volition was very, very good in that regard. I could have done things there. So I'm not, I wasn't trying to get away from the ability to not do that. But throughout my career, it's something I really hadn't got to scratch. So it was an opportunity to do that. And so everything just kind of came together for it to kind of happen at that moment. I had an opportunity to join a buddy of mine in a, in a side gig and help work in VR for the first time. So that was exciting to me too. So just a lot of little things like, but let me just go do all this stuff I've always thought about all at once and just see what it's going to be like. Take take the plunge. Yeah. And so I got down and I took a significant pay decrease, just so just so we're clear about that, mm-hmm. to, go, to go work at, at Full Sail as a, as a course director in game design. Like one of the guys and purposefully, because I just wanted to like, I just wanted to be an instructor and then have the time to focus on these other things, you know, and if, but me being who I am wasn't long before now I'm a department chair and then I'm being groomed to be the program director. So for a while there, I'm like, is that where I'm heading? I was going to be offered the position to, to run the entire game design program at the same time is when we were starting to spin up esports at full sale. And so that's when, for me, it was like, Here's this thing I've always dreamed of doing, like come to Full Sail, be in there. We never had anything to root for. We never had a reason to have school pride as far as like, like always, always proud of our other fellow grads and things like that, but nothing to root for. You know what I mean? I'm mad. No, I'm not mad. I'm happy for students going through now that they have all these amazing things that we didn't have when we went through. But having a sports team is definitely one of those things that, that solidifies that university college experience, right? Somebody to get behind and and say, yo, we got class, but after class, you know, there's a match and we get to go support and root for them and watch and talk trash at the other college teams and things that's like right. that. That's, that's <laughs> so critical to university and college, man. And yeah. we finally had that. So, but they were talking about spinning it up. Yeah. So it was like there had been it was essentially a club at this point, but it was starting to gain some traction. The University was starting to organize behind it and starting to figure out what does this mean? What should we do? And I came in at a time where I just started volunteering some time to help them out and be like, and it all started when at Hall of Fame, we had our we had our first like official Armada teams. And this was still very, very early, but they asked me to host the event. And so I hosted the event, you know, I was on camera doing the, at the desk, all that kind of thing. But I was like, we're actually doing this. Like, I want to be a part of this. So I just started volunteering time to like, all right, here's things you guys should probably be looking at, you know, how, you know, can I help do anything? And, and then the more I volunteered, the more I moved into leadership. And then eventually it got, and this is over, you know, course of, of a year or two, it got to the point where they're like, you know what? They want to offer me the position of being director of esports. And so I literally was at a point where I was like, do I want to be director of game design or the director of esports? Like that was my choice. And that was a tough decision, but it was the excitement and the newness and the ability to kind of spearhead and usher something in that we've never done before and that I'm super passionate about. Right. Yeah. And so, and I can still do game design on the side and I do. Right. So like it's, I wasn't missing out on anything. I just got to try something new and it's been, it's been a challenge, right? Like there's a lot of, like most of my time is spent, you know, in infrastructure and managing teams and, 
you know, player issues and that kind of stuff, but it's really mentorship in a different area. And it's something that I'm really enjoying doing. And, and you've come full circle. Yeah, I'm back, uh, right? You're, <laughs> back, man. you're back to where it all started and you're ushering into the next era, into the next generation. I, I'm, I love it. And I, I feel super lucky, but also I know I've, I've worked really hard and I continue to work really hard. Like it's, it's things that I care a lot about. So I put a lot into it. That's the key, man. Find, find the things that don't feel like work. Yeah. And, and, and go that route. Oh man, bro. I, I appreciate you for taking the time out. We've run longer than I told you we would hang out for. And that's <laughs> on me. And, and the drinks were good and refreshing. I definitely want people to know where to catch you how to check out your stream, your podcast, check yeah. out Full Sail Armada. So let us have it. Yeah. So fullsailarmada.gg will get you our website, right? And that's where you can see all of our teams, who our players are, when things are happening. And Full Sail Armada on socials is a great way to kind of see what we're doing there. For me personally, I use my name for everything because I figure that's easiest. You know, Jameson Doral, just like the whiskey. And then D-U-R-A-L-L. That's where you'll find me on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. And then the podcast. So my stream on Wednesdays, we call it Game Dev Wednesday. That's when I do my interviews. And then I turn it into a podcast episode called Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson. So if you search for that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever, you should be able to find me there too. And I want to add a disclaimer that it's definitely a shot. But it's because of your open, awesome community that there may be more than one shot of Jameson. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. They use channel points to make me drink, and it's, it's fun. I put a cap on it. I put a cap that's a reasonable one, but yeah, it's yeah. good times. <laughs> good, good damn times. Hey, man, so I, I have a ritual on this show that I'm trying to, uh, to build, and is if you had a good time in the hot seat falling out of the play area, is there anyone that you would nominate to follow suit? You know, I think I have two because one, you're probably already going to ask. Uh, so I don't want to throw this one away, but you got to have Rusty Sims right on here. Oh, oh, he's definitely, he's definitely coming. He doesn't know it yet. Yeah. He's definitely <laughs> coming on yet. Yeah. He's a, a, another full cell grad that we know very well. I worked with him at Volition for a long time. Very good friend of mine. He's been on my show a couple of times. Technical design lead at, at Arcane. A really, really great dude. But the other one, and I don't believe you know this guy. That's why I wanted to, to make sure that you guys get connected. That's Ryan McCabe. Ryan, Ryan McCabe. McCabe. Yep. He's a I designer own. that I worked with at Volition. He actually just changed companies recently, but he was also down at Certain Affinity for a while. He was at Red Storm before that. Super good designer. He's really great at communicating design to people. He's really good at talking about it oh. and helping people understand Here's what we're trying to do. Here's why it matters. I understand the technical limitations. So he's, he's a real good person to talk to about design. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's the type of people I want to have on the show. I only know of him because I did catch him your Game Dev Wednesdays. So oh, nice. Good. I appreciate it. Yeah, because a selfish part of putting this show together is definitely to grow the network and, and get to know more people that outside of the ones that I've worked with and have met already. So Good looking out for that one. I look forward to being able to chop it up with Ryan and Rusty. I'm coming for you guys. I just had an idea. The so, next time this is a thing and possible, you and I should have a GDC party for our podcasts and bring our guests 
and fans and let everybody hang out together. Yo, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Design that out for me. A GDC party mm-hmm. where we invite the homies. Yep, we invite all the people we've had on the show, and then we have an open invitation for people that, that listen and let everybody meet in person. Oh, that's genius. I like it. So, like, try to line it up with GDC? Yeah, or something. You know, something where everybody's going to be, you know? Yo. Do you think we're going to be out there this year in person? I don't think we're going to see real in-person events until end of this summer, early fall, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm with you. That That's what my Spidey Sense says as well. Okay. On that note, man, GDC party. Let's do it. We're going to get it, man. Jameson, take care of yourself, friend. Appreciate it, man. I appreciate you having me on. It was a good time and I hope forward, look forward to connecting again soon. Heck yeah, man. You know, you got the lifetime pass now. All right. All right. I mean, I feel like we could do two other shows and the stuff we didn't talk about. So. Oh, oh yeah, that, that that's for sure. You'll be back on here. Sounds good to me, man. Anytime. You just let me know. Peace. All right, man. Later. I can't give Jameson enough credit for not only going through Full Sail University when its game design program wasn't even battle tested, but for coming back full circle to give back and inspire the next generation of game developers by passing down his knowledge and his experiences. Isn't his story so powerful though? Like how standing up for his beliefs on a simple Gama Sutra post got him noticed by a potential employer and got him an interview before he even finished school, let alone the boss move of bringing his game on a laptop with full source code before Unreal and Unity were even a thing and be able to talk developers through every system and line of code. I highly encourage you to drop by his Twitch stream. There's always some great takeaways and an even cooler community in there. And even check out his Discord. Him bringing me on as a guest for two of his Game Dev Wednesdays to what would eventually become episodes four and five of Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson were not only great times where we flipped the roles of interviewer and interviewee, where I got to talk about my career and how I broke in, but really what he schooled me to was that if I was really serious about putting a podcast of my own together, the only thing standing in my way was me. And of course, clearing up the rights of ownership with my current employer and minor details like that. Nevertheless, here we are. When the world allows for it again, I will definitely be bringing Wifey and heading down to Florida to see him, his wife, and come watch a full set armada match in the fortress. Oh, and that GDC watch party will definitely be happening, you know, when it's safe. In the next episode of Out of Play Area, scheduled to drop Monday, March 29th, we'll switch it up and talk to a senior animator and good friend from IDOS Montreal, John Geiger, who's animated characters across so many beloved franchises and games, including Ubisoft's Prince of Persia, Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Conviction, I fucking love that game, and IDOS Montreal's Deuce X Mankind Divided, the video game icon herself, Lara Croft in Shadow of the Tomb Raider, and even some work on Marvel's Avengers. If you've ever wondered what it takes to make it as an animator in the video games industry, you won't want to miss it. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate your support in following the podcast, leaving a review, or even just passing it on through word of mouth to another fellow developer. Every little bit helps get this out there. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions for me or a guest, please email me at john at autoplayarea.com or call in and leave a message at 760-981-0311. Both links are readily available at the top of our homepage at outofplayarea.com. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev, just under the email and phone links and the website, there's a button to book a meeting with me on Calendly. Please make sure to get approval from your studio PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please make sure to follow and see what developer pushes Out of Play Area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Till next time, devs, stay safe, stay true, stay creative. We out.